Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, it looks like we are live, guys. Welcome to Standing for Truth, where we focus on the truth of biblical creation. As you know, we also host debates, interviews, and discussions. So if you enjoy the content coming out of Standing for Truth, then please hit that subscribe button. Also, look for us on Facebook, Patreon, and please check out our alternative channel, which just hit 10,000 subscribers at Young Earth Creation. You can find that on YouTube and uh, check out our website, creationistclothing.com. Now, today we have an awesome show for you guys. I am extremely excited that John Mackay, the creation guy, can be back with us here today. This is his third time on the show, and so please check out our first two must-watch interviews and presentations with John. Uh, let me bring in John and George into the show. John, George, my award-winning co-host, thank you for being here, gentlemen. Uh, John, you are on mute. Make sure you unmute yourself, and thanks again for giving us your time. You're a fan favorite, John, so... There we are. That should be unmuted, correct? Yes. Yes, we can hear you. Thanks for being here and giving us your time, John. By the way, if George is award-winning, what award does he get? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been wondering the same thing, John. I've been waiting for it, but nothing's in the mail yet. I uh, sent it out six months ago, George. I can't believe it still hasn't made its way to you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll right. fly it out there one of these days. Okay. So... Um, Actually, George, if you had a, a few words in terms of introduction, and then I think we'll hand it over to John, uh, who can introdu introduce the topic of the day, as well as the format. So uh, firstly, George, thanks for being here, and, and thanks for joining us in today's no, presentation. No, no problem. My, my pleasure. I mean, I'd like to thank uh, John uh, for being here. I know he's very busy, and um, he actually contacted me about three or four weeks ago and said, hey, mate, he goes, I'm... I'm free if you want me to do another one. I said, you betcha. I jumped at it. But what, what I, I mean, I didn't know much about uh, orchids apart from the fly orchid. Apparently, orchids actually mimic um, the scent of uh, a lot of insects. So, so they use that to pollinate. But I found it interesting that um, even Charles Darwin, in a letter to botanist Sir Joseph Hooker, of the Kew Gardens in 1881. Uh, this is what uh, Charles Darwin actually commented in that letter. He said, nothing is more extraordinary in the history of the vegetable kingdom, as it seems to me, than the apparently very sudden and abrupt development of the higher plants. Then I, then I found another thing on orchids. Uh, it says, orchids are well known for using mimicry to attract pollinators, but imitating a mushroom is certainly odd. They're talking about a specific uh, orchid there. So Barbara Roy made this comment. She says, mimicry, quote, mimicry is one of the best examples of natural selection that we have. How mimicry evolves is a big question in evolutionary biology. It sure is, Barbara. 
All right, I'll hand it over to John. Uh, but I think you'll find this very, very interesting. These plants are amazing. I think there's, correct me if I'm wrong here, John, I think there's about 28 to 30,000 species across about 700 to 1,000 different genera. Well, that's true, and we really don't know the number, George, because since I've been growing orchids since a teenager, it's sort of gone up by 50 to 200 every year, uh, and some get unclassified, so we're never quite sure how many species there are. So Darwin would have a field day with the origin of species. It would certainly mess up any numbers he tried to find. John, I, I did a quick search yesterday, and there's a site called uh, Orchids Mackay. Is that you? <laughs> it's obviously one of my relatives. You get the right to name an orchid after yourself. Normally, you put in Mackay, you know, put two eyes on the end, or Machiensis. Um, but we'll talk about names as we come to this, because that's one of the funny sides of uh, the orchid, the, the orchid kingdom. And remember, the Bible says God created all things, and Charles Darwin was attempting to explain God out of the picture. And likewise, the lady who's commenting on mimicry assumes that because the bee or the wasp looks like the orchid, one had to somehow naturally be selected to copy the shape of the orchid. And they never say the orchid copied the shape of the insect. How yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Right. All right, so over to you, John. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to take your time. All right. Well, let me, let me put a question to all of you who are watching. Um, this is an orchid bulb, right? It's normally part of the plant that you'd try to plant again if you wanted to copy it. In this case, this is a native orchid, one that lives in the trees around here. And I have a big collection of orchids. I've been growing them since I was a teenager. I always have to confess that that was before I was a Christian. I got interested in these plants. And my first orchids, I confess, I stole from a dear old lady. I had to repent of that when I became a Christian. I don't steal them anymore, but I do grow a lot of them. But it does raise a good question. We think of orchids as very pretty. So let me bring this one in. There's one of my orchids. I bought it in this morning and uh, it's plain white. Oh, for those of you watching, you want to grow orchids for sale, the white ones are the best sellers, you know, for marriages and celebrations. Surprising, surprising, but they're the ones that go most. But why would you call them an orchid? You got any ideas, George? You live in Australia. Uh, that one I don't know, but... Uh... But isn't your I, real name isn't your real name some sort of Greek name? Your family yes. background? Well, well, you well I, was, I was I was gonna I was gonna cite the uh, epiphyte. Epiphytes. Well, they, they some of them are epiphytes. They live on the on the tree or whatever. They yeah. don't use the tree. That would be a, a good name. They're not parasites. Parasites like many politicians are. But this one gives you a clue. You see, the word orchid itself comes from the Greek nation. You should be proud of that in your ancestry. But do you know what it means? Come on, have a good look at it. You, you too, Donnie. Any ideas what a Canadian would call that? <laughs> no, I'm not too sure. I know this is a Christian show, and we're supposed to leave sex and all that up. Well, but you see, the early Greeks thought that looked like a testicle. So they <laughs> used the Greek one for testicle, orcus. So that's I didn't want to go there. Up. I know you don't want to go there, but I've got into all sorts of trouble, even running homeschool events, when I tell them where the name comes from. And one lady got so mad, she said, you brought up sex in... And I have to. That's where the word comes from. Orchids are named after a male testicle. Okay. Some of the interesting things about orchids, pretty white one, isn't it? It's one of the sort of the dendrobium family or the Cooktown family. 
because uh, it's a bit hard with this camera. I've got to remember to reverse things around. But what most people don't know about orchids is, uh, let me just pick this flower here. It'll grow some more of them. I'll hold it still. And all orchids, whoops, there we are, they're all edible. Oh. Put them on your cakes. But don't be surprised at that. You see, they didn't evolve to be poisonous or prickly. The Bible says God created all the plants and he did it very good. And then he told Adam he could use them for food. So on Adam's first birthday, if there was such a thing, he could have put these on his birthday cake. Actually, <laughs> quite quite nice, like a like a sweet lattice. So I enjoy orchids. And this one here, I potted him up on a, a bit of cork. Um, he grows well. He's sort of short and fat. And if you're ever in the Aussie bush, this is a native, you know, indigenous to Australia. Very common. Another variety of dendrobium. It has beautiful big gold fronds, but because it's not summer out here at the moment, they're not visible. Um, they'll come back again in December and January, etc. And they are beautiful for stirring in your tea out in the bush, Billy. Right. And, and, and they'll give a beautiful fragrance. But if they're not in flower and you're hungry, see these bulbs? You can eat them. Oh, in what way? If you need to make a little patty cake, you can grab the bulb, crush it up, and you can then boil it up, get the starch out, dry it out, and make yourself a nice little patty cake. Uh, orchids definitely are edible. The bulbs, the, the, basically the whole bang lot is edible. Uh, they're beautiful. They're good to be seen. In fact, look at this one here. When you have a look at this orchid here, you've got to say, well, isn't that beautiful? Very pretty colour. I'll put it up as close as I can get. Are we still in focus? That's in focus there. Oh, yeah. and, and these, well, these are a little moth-type orchids. They're beautiful colours. Now, have a good look at it. There's the leaves down the bottom. There's the pot I've got it in. Now, nobody believes the pot got there by itself. But yet Charles Darwin and the ABC in America and the ABC in Australia, they all like to claim that the orchids evolved. They evolved, you know, to, to match wasps and that. And then you see this one here. By the way, this one is a fake. It's actually meant to be a copy of that. And as I love to tell people, it's easy to prove the concept of creation. And creation itself has nothing to do with religion. Or oh, the God who created. You could call that bit religion if you like. But no more so than Maxwell's law or Einstein's principle. You are crediting the one who came up with it. Now, this one here. The Bible says God created all the plants and he saw them. And they were very good. This one here, I paid $10 for this. It was at a secondhand sale. It's the same orchid as this one, except this one, we know who made that one in modern history. This is a fake made of plastic that doesn't do orchids. Now, it's a simple point that you can always recognize a creation because the end product has properties that the stuff it comes from don't have. I mean, plastic doesn't do flowers. Iron doesn't do stems all by itself. Green plastic combined with white plastic and fiberglass and all sorts of coloration does not get together to make orchids any more than paints made Rembrandt's masterpieces. You and I know how to recognize creation. And, and that, by the way, is a barb you can throw at anybody from Dawkins across to Darwin, who's dead, and it's too late for him to listen, but to all your friends and colleagues out there, they all know creation. So when they say, what's the evidence of creation, turn it around and say, well, what are you looking for? Because they, first of all, have to acknowledge that they know what a creation is. 
it shows in the fake flowers that we use to copy the real ones. And the Bible says God created in the beginning. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to swap over to a PowerPoint presentation. And if my young assistant, Ben, has done it correct, we should start to come up certainly here. There we are. Orchids by design should be showing up shortly. Share screen. Thank you very much. By the way, it's amazing what us last generation people have learned about technology in this COVID time. Don't you reckon, George? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I reckon so. I, John, I've, I've, I find it interesting. A lot of cultures in the world actually use the orchids for medicinal purposes. And um, I'm a connoisseur of ice cream, in specifically vanilla ice cream. Yeah. But and I'll, that's I'll an orchid. That's yeah, an orchid. Exactly. So I wasn't aware of that, but uh, it's amazing some of the new things that you read on and um, you find out how amazing they are. Yeah, it really is. Of course, if you want to get drunk, you can drink straight vanilla essence, the artificial one. <laughs> please don't. <laughs> please don't do that. But it's dissolved in alcohol. And what you'll find is the real one is actually far superior in flavour. It, it comes as little black beans. So if you've seen black bean vanilla ice cream, grab it. The flavour is absolutely fragrant. Okay, have a look at my first PowerPoint here. It says Orchids by Design. And I love to pat myself on the back here because I designed that cover. And Dr. Diane Eager sort of photoshopped the orchid patch at the bottom. It didn't happen by itself. Simple point, but I will remind you of it. Now, come to my backyard. Lots of experience. Do you see the pretty flower in the trees? Yes, we don't need a fancy greenhouse. Look at those flowers growing over my dam down the back. How about these ones? And yes, there's our website, creationresearch.net. And what do we use these for? Reminding people that what God says about orchids is far more reliable than what Charles Darwin says. You see, we run Jurassic Ark and we have an orchid garden because the plants at Jurassic Ark are a whole botanic gardens of biblical evidence. Not just, you know, not just the plants of Israel, we have some of those too, but we go from Adam to Australia. That's an orchid, by the way. It's the only orchid in the world that flowers through its roots. See, they hang down. And there's that naming bit. That's called a Stanhopea, and it's named after Lord Stanhope. I mean, in the 1800s, as the British ruled the world, they would take plants from here and there and everywhere. And if it got back to your Lord and Master and he took a liking to it, he had the right to name it after himself. Hence your question, George, I could call a fossil John Mackey and put it <laughs> in a penis, etc. But here's a sort of a quote that's sort of like what you said, but a little more modern. You see, I was in the USA one year and I was asked to do a program on design. And this is, in essence, uh, what, what we did. Uh, this is from Professor Williams, Department of Biological Sciences, Florida State University. The pollination mechanisms that he, Darwin, described are still today as marvellous as when Darwin first described them. Darwin? What's he got to do with orchids? Well, the interesting thing, of course, is Darwin actually wrote a book on orchids on the various contrivances by which British and foreign orchids are fertilised by insects and on the good effects of intercrossing. <laughs> Don't they have long names in some of those old books? 1862. Now, he's got a more famous book that he wrote in 1859, but in this one, he does a marvellous job of describing how the orchids worked, what he saw, um, never solves the problem where they came from, but you see, in his uh, orchid book, he never tells you that he graduated as a Master of Arts in 
theology. Now, did you catch me? There he is. Charles Darwin graduated as a Master of Arts in theology. And he knew that the Bible says, God said, let the earth bring forth plants according to their own kinds. We know he knew his Bible because he would quote from it in his diary. He knew that everything God created was very good. You can't get to be a theological graduate in the 1800s before evolution is around, when many of the theologians believe Genesis is true without studying Genesis chapter one. Everything God made was very good. So what did he make comments about orchids that even his biggest ultimate supporter would say, this is not possible? Let me show you. There's one of my orchids. Yep, early in the morning. You say, that doesn't look like an orchid. Let's take it from the other side. This is an orchid called Catacetum fimbriatum. Now, you try to actually make the name match. So fimbriatum, that's sort of a fancy word for hairy face or bearded. You, you see the little frills coming out from the edge? And catacetum, C-A-T-A -A as in catastrophic. Something goes off with a bang in this orchid. Catacetum, well, acetum is a little hair or a little trigger. Um, let me show you where it comes from. There it is, close up. You'll see the beardy frills out the bottom. You'll see a funny looking thing poking down the middle just into that dark green. And here's what happened. Charles Darwin described the shooting of the pollen in catacetum and he received from Thomas Huxley, you know, the man who became known as Charles Darwin's bulldog. Thomas Huxley said back to him, do you really think I can believe all that? Now, here we have two people doing their best to leave God out of everything. Charles Darwin actually observed. He doesn't theorize. He dictates what he's seeing. And Huxley says, I can't believe that. What can't he believe? Well, there's my orchid. Yes, I pulled half of it off so you can see inside. Now, can you actually see the trigger? This is the setum, the big long hair, the stiff hair that's going to do something. And just below it, you'll find a platform where the bee can actually land. Okay, let's uh, follow a bee. Now, do you see, no bee is stupid enough to come in and bang a trigger straight away. It knows where it's going. It's going into the back of that little orchid there, and it will avoid being impaled on that trigger. But what's interesting, of course, is when it nibbles a bit on the back of that, its back legs collapse. It loses all ability to hold on, and it falls backwards. And amazingly, all by chance over millions of years, well, that's what Darwin would have to say. That's what the ABC would say. That's what the high school text would say. Amazingly, natural selection has made it so the trigger on the orchid actually releases the pollen. It's, it's sometimes known as a six-gun orchid, and it shoots the bee right in the middle of the back. Now, do you realize how clever this is? Because bees have got legs. Bees can scratch their, their face, they can scratch their abdomen, they can unclog their wings, but there's one place on the body they can't scratch, and that's right in the middle of the back. Now, let's do an imitation bee. You know, Shakespeare, to be or not to be? Well, I'm going to be this time. I'm using my stick here to actually trigger the flower. Now, there's the pollen. You see there's a little two wings, that's the little bags of pollen. There's a sticky part on the end, and if you want to know what's happening here, to show you how strong the glue is on this, I now hold the pen up. Do you realize this 
glue is strong enough. I've run the test. I just can't show you on the picture. It holds up five pens at once. Now, if you think we invented super glue, forget it. Um, God invented super glue. And the best we do is to try and copy. So this little pollen bag is now glued unbelievably strongly in the middle of the only place the bee can't scratch. Now, what's it do next? Well, the funny thing is, it's the bee, it's got the pollen, and it's thirsty. It needs something else to nibble on. And if there's a female flower, well, there's the male at the top, there's the female at the bottom. Do you notice how different they are? This is unbelievable. Uh, originally, people thought they were two different orchids, but they're not. They're actually boy and girl. And just to throw an aside, this happens so often with fossils. If a boy dinosaur is found and a girl dinosaur is found, she looks so different, they normally think they're two totally different ones, but they're not. Hmm. Okay. Now, let's analyze this a bit. There's the female flower, and it helps us answer a good question. How long have you got to make an orchid? Or put it in evolutionist terms, how long have you got to evolve an orchid? Because here's what happens. You see the insect, the bee, gets shot in the middle of its back. It goes and it lands on the female, climbs inside, and the female flower will actually take the pollen and rip it off. Okay, question. The, first this little bee gets shot, then it gets ripped off. And in, in both cases, it's part of a pre-designed system to deliver postage free of charge care of the bee. Okay, how long have you got to evolve an orchid? How long have you got to make an orchid? It's a simple point. If you don't have everything in place, you don't have anything that will work at all. Uh, you can't take time to get this orchid right while the bee waits. You can't take time to get the bee right while the orchid waits. You can't take time to fix the glue up because they all fell off. That's why a professor at uh, Williams at Florida State University said that. The pollination mechanisms Darwin described are still today as marvellous as when Darwin first described them. You see, we've got a far better explanation than what Darwin has or Huxley has. It works because everything God created was very good. And in fact, you go one step further, quoting Genesis 1, 11 and 12, God said, let the earth bring forth plants according to their own kinds. Do you realize, of course, when the female catacetum gets fertilized, then it only ever produces pumpkins? <laughs> that's stupid. You know that's stupid. Everybody on earth knows that's stupid. It only ever produces catacetum orchids. It does exactly what the Bible says. So all of you are listening out there who've got friends who are not Christians who say, we couldn't believe in creation. Don't try and justify yourself. Turn it around on them and say, well, what are you looking for? Well, where's the evidence the Bible is true? Just bring up a flower and say, look, gerberas produce gerberas. Uh, that's what happens. And look how well it works. God thought it was good, but don't just stop there. You see, your Bible goes on to say God's good world has been tainted by man's sin and the degeneration is very real. Come on, let's just take an example. I get sick and tired of people telling me science is making people live longer. And I love to remind them, hey, when someone gets to be 968, come and see me. Because the Bible records the time when people lived to be nearly a thousand before Noah's flood. And since Noah's flood, it's been dropping, 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 dropping. Degeneration? Oh, yes, it applies to orchids. Look what happened in my greenhouse one year. Now, if you know anything about orchids, 
how many stripy leaved orchids have you actually seen? They're scarcer than hen's teeth in a real sense. You see, if I can ever get this to catch on and to spread across plants, I could call it Makaii stripii, something like, yeah, I could come up with a name because I first saw this in my orchid house. But in the same year, and I don't know if it was extra radiation from the sun or chemicals next door from the farmers or whatever, look what happened to my beautiful, um, look at that, isn't that, oh, that's one of those white ones, the ones that are the best sellers of all the orchids. That's the normal one. But in that year, look what happened. That's descended from the same plant. Instead of having three petals and three sepals, it's only got two of each and it's lost its female sex organs. Yep, there it is. Now that's degeneration. You see, the stripy leaf comes from losing chlorophyll, ending up with no chlorophyll where there should be chlorophyll. So it never grows too well. It's much slower. It's why I can't get it to catch on. And this one, no female organs. It can't ever reproduce by pollination. Um, there is one advantage in some of these orchids, by the way. They originally, most of them have two ways of reproducing. You say, that doesn't look like an orchid. Well, that's growing in my greenhouse at the moment. There's our website. If you want to check out Jurassic Ark and come and see our orchids up there. Look, that, that looks like it's got three same petals and three same sepals. Well, it seems to have lost mostly its female organs, but because we can actually take the little bits at the bottom and we clone orchids, Yes, you're right. Some of you who are old enough have noticed that the price of orchids has dropped, dropped, dropped. They used to be very rare, very expensive, but we learned how to clone them. We've been cloning orchids for a long time. Um, that one you can reproduce by cloning and it won't crossbreed with its ancestors. So by definition, it's a new species. But look at that. You can get the origin of species, but only by degeneration. Um, we can take sunflowers. We can inject them with one of your heart medicines called colchicine. We can do the same to tobacco and we can double the size of the leaves and it won't crossbreed with its ancestors from one generation back. But you see, it's degenerate. New species by degeneration. And, and, and to make it harder for Darwin and, and because God on judgment day, did you catch what I said? Creation and judgment are all connected. God's right to judge the world, to judge Mr. Biden, to judge Mr. Trump, to judge you and me. It's actually based on his authority and his power as creator. He told us that the animals would produce their own kind. The plants would produce their own kind, which brings up to my particular interest in fossils. There's a bee with orchid pollen preserved in amber. Okay, now... Even if you said it was 10 million, 20 million, 40 million, 100 million years old, uh, do we know what sort of orchid the pollen came from? Oh, you can recognize it's a bee because it just looks like a bee. There's no evidence bees have ever evolved at all. Yep, there's the identification. The pollen is so well preserved, you can put it under a microscope and it belongs to that orchid. Meorchis mm. carabia. Yeah, I know some of them have strange names. But then you now know a little bit about how they do get named. Uh, is it still here? Sure it is. There's one there. Now you can be really honest in this and say that means this amber, which is yonk, 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 so it goes way back into that dinosaur rocks. 
Yep, I dug up plenty of fossil amber out of the rocks in Montana alongside the dinosaur bones. And amber is very useful because it's so sticky. It's got all sorts of stuff in it, insects and pollen, and you can be brutally blunt. The dinosaurs could have walked amongst the orchids. You see the bees are still here. The orchids are still here. The same pollen. The dinosaurs may be gone, but that's another example of degeneration. Oh, and one last example. There's the emblem of the National Orchid Association there. It's the oldest fossil orchid known. Eorchis myokianica, Mel. Um, you say, how do we know what it is? Well, the whole family's still here today. It's a ground-dwelling orchid, and it's uh, no, no trouble at all to prove what it is. And if you're looking for evidence the Bible is true, you can't beat this one. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says God made creatures to produce their own kinds. Now, nothing provides you with a better evidence of the truth of the Bible than you actually noticing that COVID-19 just turns into COVID. Oh, it may end up with more mutations, but the more mutations it ends up with, the worse off it is as well. Ah, man produces man. Man might have been resistant to COVID once, but half of our disease problems are due to you losing your immune system is collapsing 10 times. God said he made creatures to produce their own kind. All our tests on influenza, our flu season's coming up down here. Influenza A, over 70 to 80 years of testing all the thousands of variety, it's still influenza A. Viruses, plants, animals. But there's a question for you as we finish this section off. Which book tells us this? Who is the author? Ah, it's in Genesis. And that's why I want to finish with that statement there. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But since you don't believe what Moses wrote, how will you believe what I say? Now, I speak in many churches, and often I'll have Christians come and say, but surely God could have used the evolution. And my simple question is, which God are you talking about? Because the God who is the truth, the one who came to earth as Jesus Christ, he said, if it wasn't so, I would have told you. And he said, you'd better believe Moses because Moses wrote about me. But if you don't believe what Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Psalm 90, then you really don't believe what I say. So can I encourage you, read Genesis, read Exodus, read all the way to the book of Revelation, because God's authority as judge is based on his power as creator and his mercy um, because he came to actually save you. He saved me. I'm so glad to be a Christian because he's made such a difference in my life. I don't steal people's orchids anymore. What a difference that is. Can I encourage you? Go to our website, creationresearch.net, Q&A, and I believe we're going to swap over to questions now, and uh, we'll just see how we go. I'll, I'm here by myself. Let's see if I can stop sharing. There we are. Look at that. I did. <laughs> very smooth, very smooth. Uh John, you've mastered it. And I got to say, that was a great presentation. We've got a ton of questions. We're, we're never going to be able to get through them all. Uh, so fascinating presentation. I'd like, I'd like to point out one thing that I like that you said, that if you don't have everything, you don't have anything. So many types of these problems, right? For those who want to believe in large-scale evolution, where um, you pointed out in your presentation that God tells us he created everything very good. So these types of complexities could not have been built up slowly. They must have started off perfect. And now what we see is degeneration.
since that perfect creation as a result, the result of the fall. So a uh, great presentation, Don. I appreciate that. And George, any thoughts, brother? Yeah, standing. I'd, I'd like to add to, to John's presentation by sharing my screen. Sure. I say, why should why should he have all the fun, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go to it. But... Is the Galar parrot at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> all right, George. If you want to share a screen. Yeah, hold on a sec. Oh, here, we, here we go, brother. How's that? It. Can you yeah. can you see that little creature there? Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, that that's an orchid as well, but it's called the fly orchid. Yeah. And there's some interesting facts about the fly orchid, okay? This little plant uses a scent to attract the male wasps and bees which pollinate the flowers yeah. as they attempt to mate with the flower, okay? The scent released by the flowers mimic the female sexual pheromones. Question to ask, how does a flower know how to mimic the female pheromones of a bee or a wasp. And then there's another one, John. I'm sure you know about this one. This is the Dracula uh, orchid. And you can see there, it looks a bit like a Dracula. He's sometimes but, called the monkey orchid. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I you can, can see, see the monkey there too, yeah. <laughs> and this, this one actually um, attracts the flies by mimicking... I think a, a, a mushroom and the scent of a mushroom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it attra attracts the flies onto that mushroom and that's how it pollinates the, the orchid. And how, how can some of these things actually evolve? I just cannot imagine that things like this evolve. Th these are great examples of design. So well, I'm going to stop. When, when, when they're allowed to ask questions at university, if anybody asks that, how could you evolve that step by step? They will be put down. They yeah. will be sort of made fools of because there is no answer to that question except the honest one, which says they can't. You either have everything or you don't have anything that will work at all. Once you've got everything, it can degenerate, but it can never build up in complexity at all. John, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Is the asparagus a orchid or a... Um... Or derivative of an orchid? No, it isn't. It's uh, if you look at its flower, it's definitely not an orchid, but it is tasty. <laughs> but, but the wild asparagus, it takes over everything. I grow some... asparagus in my garden, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think so... I think there's a few a few questions there to ask. Yeah, yeah, I, I can start with uh, some of the ones that first came in. I would say during about five or ten minutes into your presentation. John, mm -hmm. so if, if you did kind of address some of these uh, during your presentation, I apologize. But um, this question comes in from Jamie Russell. Jamie, I appreciate your question. He says, how should we see carnivorous plants in a young earth creation model? Okay, where I live, when I was a boy, this was an old cattle property, right? And we bought it when it was run down. So we got it real cheap. And right down the back, there's wetlands. Now, wetlands are traditionally low in oxygen, low in nitrogen in the soil. The, the roots are get waterlogged. So many of the plants have what you call a carnivorous habit, particularly one that lives here called our sundew plant. Now, you look at it and it looks fairly pretty and it's got droplets of dewy stuff on. And if an insect lands on it, 
it gets caught and the orchid will those leaves will roll up and the insect will just dissolve in the so-called digestive juices now the funny thing is if you take that same plant and you put it elsewhere uh, where it doesn't get waterlogged all of a sudden it ceases to be a carnivorous plant because it gets more of what it needs out of the plant out of the soil that's already there so the carnivorous habit is really a default mechanism it simply survives by default default of the insect that's silly enough to go and get caught in the sticky dew that's on it but in the ordinary circumstance it is not a carnivorous plant at all uh, likewise when you have a look at some of the orchids that have a lovely fragrance and this is where it falls apart that mimicking of smells goes some of the in some of the orchids are so precise their little opening is a one size and it fits only one one insect in the whole of the insect kingdom and yet some of the bigger insects can smell smell their smell as well and what they'll do is they'll, they'll come all around you can watch them and they'll try and tear their way in and sometimes they will force their way in because they're big enough they'll force the uh, mouth opening in and they'll get inside and of course it shuts behind them the other orchid could get out the tiny little opening but the big one gets stuck and it still dissolves in the nectar and the juice that's in there so the nectar already has enzymes in it just like those enzymes that are on the sticky dew one and they will function as digestive mechanisms but it's not the insect that's being eaten it's the nitrogenous products in it that are being taken out so you can actually see the devolution of plant um carnivorous habits out of necessity by trying to survive but they 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 normally prefer to not do that but they can do it because this this nectar inside actually functions as a digestive agent as well that well, that's a great well that's a great response um very informative uh john and you mentioned degeneration is, is what we see as well as the speciation events in plants as well so the question is the types of speciation events that we see in plants and animals are they the types of changes necessary for macroevolution for large-scale evolution okay um as i think i've shared before so often with students after i'd sort of got involved in geology and you learn all about fossils and uh, you then see the fact that darwin I mean, I had to agree with Darwin, the fossils are the worst part of his theory. Read chapter 10, he says that in his Origin of Species. And from that day to this, nothing has changed that. You find the first fishes look like fishes, the first amphibians, etc. And so when you look at his title, Origin of Species, it's a clever, deceitful title. As a theologian, he knew the Bible didn't use the word species. The Bible used the word kind. Okay, so there's point number one. If he'd have written a book called Origin of Kind, I would have said, rah, 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 clap, clap, Mr. Darwin. You're on the right track. But never once in his book does he discuss the origin of kinds. He right. likes to pretend that if we can go from longhorn cattle to shorthorn cattle to hornless cattle, those sort of changes over millions of years produce evolution. Richard Dawkins, his ardent disciple, says if we can take cabbages that the Romans brought to England, you still see them growing on the cliffs where the Romans invaded. You know, they brought their cabbages with them. And we can take those wild cabbages with sort of rosy red, purpley edges and slightly bitter, and we can turn them into those big bulkhead cabbages today. 
then in 2,000 years, that's wonderful. Can you imagine what would happen to seaweed in 600 million years? <laughs> but never once do we know anything about the origin of anything outside the cabbage kind. They still produce cabbages. Mm. All right, so what did I do? To try and help myself resolve this, I went and did three years genetics. I really enjoyed genetics, uh, except for the bit where you had to do so much prac work. You had to microscopically rip the salivary glands out of Drosophila melanogaster, put them under the microscope, map the chromosomes and try and... Oh, I tell you what, this was just ghastly and boring. Um, but I did learn a lot. You see, we see lots of changes. Our professor was a world expert in the evolution of Drosophila. And one of the things we loved to study was the fact that when you look at Drosophila melanogaster and all the subspecies of it, you certainly see speciation, but you don't see evolution. Illustration, you take the normal chromosome and it has all the nice bars on, you can see under the microscope. This, by the way, is before the high-powered electron microscope and the DNA and all of that. So I'm on the edge of that changeover. And then you can actually see under a microscope, you put those chromosomes in and let them loose and they will try to mate. Um, if you have two the same, they'll match up precisely. Uh, but if you have this one here and the order is A, B, C, D, E, F, G and A, B, D, C, F, E, G, what you find is this one will twist itself inside out to try and match up. And many times it can't. So when it can't, they separate out from then on, you have two separate species. They have exactly the same genetic components, but they cannot mate anymore. So speciation is true, but evolution is not. And you can have the same thing happen when they start losing bits uh, or duplicating the same bits. Speciation by degeneration is the rule for the creatures, but you never produce a new kind. So just to repeat that, you must distinguish between kind, which is your family group, uh, all the cattle kind, all the dinosaur kind, all the dog kind, uh, and your species, coyote, uh, canis lupus, uh, canis aurelius, all of those sort of things, they're subspecies, and they can all mate with one another, except sometimes they're so degenerate, they can no longer mate, even though you recognize them as the same kind. Hopefully that's helpful. Yes, very helpful, actually, John. Uh, that kind of brings me to a question that is, directly related to what you're saying because you're talking about species and speciation by degeneration so the question is is it difficult then john as the critics would say to produce all the species we see today from a handful of art kinds say 4500 years ago is that a problem for our model i guess is the question um, it isn't actually because we do this ourselves uh whether we're farming or uh, and sometimes our classification is a little bit fake because we've done it for our point of view, not the plant's point of view. So when you actually bring plants, say, from England, where you've been growing them for a thousand or two thousand years and you bring them to Australia, the plant goes, hey, I'm not at home. I've got to do something right. And it'll either die out, which does happen to some things. It'll change the season in which it fruits or else it'll just react to the environment to produce something you didn't know it could do. Now, illustration, my strawberries were bought from England and they still fruit at roughly the same time as the ones they were bought from in England, right? So they haven't managed to make the change at all. So there are many places in Australia where you can't grow those strawberries. It just simply doesn't work. Uh, there are other plants that uh, you, ha you have had to uh, 
um, naturally select or artificially select for the ones that will survive in Australian climates. And surprise, surprise, some of those you had in England actually will thrive in Australia. They already had that ability. You just never saw it. It's like my dad, he came from Scotland. When he got to Australia, he found he had freckles. There just wasn't enough sunshine in Scotland to prove he did. So it was a property you already had, and this is true for plants as well. But a freckled man is not a different species than a, than a non-freckled man. So you'll find that some of the plants already have that ability. But having said that, uh, you can then see the other sorts of changes. Now, we're a bit, bit um, lacking in information as to when you watch the plants change, because you can watch it in your own backyard, right? The grass will slowly change to a longer sort or a shorter sort. It is not evolving, but we don't quite know how it, how it directs the change because it can change back. You shift its environment again, it'll change back. Um, I, I think the best commercial example of this is when we bred rice or wheat or corn uh, increase the size of the rice head is a famous experiment. We did it for the third world countries uh, so that the, the, the harvest of rice would be greater. And then what we discovered, we could actually increase the number of rice grains by breeding in a head of rice. But at the same time, we could not make the stem strong enough to hold it up. So, so in the end, we discovered we had to have a balance between the size of the head and the strength of the stem, and that was the best the plant could do. It does seem there are real limits to what plants can actually uh, adapt. That's the best word. Charles Darwin had it. The people had it long before Charles Darwin because they discovered bring a plant from you know Israel where you went with the Crusaders, bring it back to England. It, excuse me, it will adapt but it doesn't change into a different kind. Um, that's sort of the limitation of our knowledge in that it does happen, speciation is real, but it never produces a new kind. Very good answer to a, a question, <laughs> a very common question and argument from the evolutionists. Uh, George, as you know, I, I could keep going on with questions. Uh, George, maybe you had a specific question you wanted to ask or a comment or two you wanted to make, George. Oh, yeah, I've got a couple, but uh, we'll go through the list. Uh, John, you spoke of a man living to 900. Uh, do we have any evidence of this being the case outside of the Bible? I mean, I can cite you sort of statistical analyses and whatever, but I'll, I'd like to hear your answer first before I add to it. Okay. Um, some people know uh, because they've seen our documentaries. We went around the world. We did several documentaries on the origin of the races. We did a documentary called Real Roots, and we interviewed the native groups about their own traditions about history, right, on creation, on the flood. And every now and then we'd come across a legend which directly implied a biblical comment outside of creation or the flood. We've got one uh, here in Australia where the Aborigines, just north of where I live, they had a story about there was a day when the sun didn't go down, right? It just stayed up right and it had all sorts of interesting consequences now the bible talks about joshua's long day and i'm pretty sure they are talking about exactly the same thing okay so you've now got stories about how long people used to live so in the case of the aborigines again and you can see all this on our documentaries go to our website uh, get the mp4 download the streaming whatever's available there at creationresearch.net and and you'll find there are some groups who are stories about in the beginning Man lived a very long time, 
right? And that's the context. The Aborigines even have a story about where death came from, that the creator, yes, they believe in a creator. None of them believe in evolution. They haven't been here for 50 or 70,000 years at all. They came from India. They haven't been here long. And they have a verbal account that goes like this. The creator said, that's my tree. You're not allowed to eat the honey out of that tree. But anyway, the man and the woman who were there, well, they would go past this tree and the fragrance was incredible. And after a little while, the woman started to nag her husband, you know, nag, 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 give me some, you know, nag, nag, nag. And, and anyway, the poor man finally gave in. He climbs up the tree, reaches in, gets the honey out, and out flies the bat of death. And ever since then, man has died. So, yes, you will find legends like this amongst Aborigines. You find them amongst the Chinese. They're stories of all of the pre-dynastic Chinese living a very long time. You'll find it in Egyptian chronology, even though they stretch our lifespans to vast ages, kings who lived an unbelievable long time. The same pattern is there. There was a time and we lived a long time. Now we don't. So, yes, there's plenty of evidence uh, indirectly uh, that, George, throw your statistical one in, if you like. Yeah, it was interesting, John, because uh, we did about a year of statistical analysis in my engineering course. But it's interesting to note that when you look at the main characters in the Bible, uh, commencing from uh, Adam, you, you get you get reasonably flat line up until the the global flood. And from there on, it's a degeneration, if you like, or, or like a genetic entropy type curve mm -hmm. where where that when you when you do a best fit analysis on that curve, you get what we call in statistical analysis an R squared value of 0.9 to, to about 0.96. Now, anything around about the 0.9 is considered a very, very good fit. Now, con considering the fact that, you know, we're told that the Bible was written by these goat herders over thousands of years, how on earth can these guys conspire to get a fit such as that, that with an R-square valued so accurate? Well, they, they certainly can't. It's beyond credibility. You can run a statistical analysis of the probability and you'll get zero. It's the same yeah. as like in our third year of uh, university genetics, we had to do a statistics course as well. And one of the things that was in the textbook was a graphical analysis of population. Okay, now the graph was really trying to get across the fact that if we keep going with, you know, tetrafluorides and all these sort of things in our environment, man's going to sort of reach the stage where we'll either die out or our population is going to be so great we'll overcrowd the planet. But what I did was look at the other end of the graph that goes down to zero between four and 5,000 years ago. And the professor's comment was, well, that's because the population was so small it doesn't sort of show any increase. In other words, everybody was on the birth control pill, which has got a probability of zero, but it matches perfectly the biblical history. Eight people on a boat all got off and became the ancestors of the Aborigines who came to Australia via Babel, via India, became the Aboriginal ancestors of those who went to Alaska and South America and not all that long ago. So again, you find plenty of evidence of that and the evidence is even right down to the present of this decreasing lifespan. Now, you and I are told that people are living longer. Remember the little quip I made? 
you bring me a man who's 968 and I'll be convinced because what I see is the opposite. I bore some of my helpers crazy sometimes on field trips because I love cemeteries. I go to ancient Roman cemeteries. I photograph the tombstones. I have thousands and thousands of tombstones from around the world that list the births, the, the, the birth and death and the lifespan. And I've come across quite a few fascinating ones. So up there on the border of England and Scotland, there's a whole family. They used to work in the mines up there. There's an old lead mine. The Romans started it up and it's gone on for a long, long time. Okay. Halfway down the valley, there's an old man who lived to be about 170. And then you can follow his family as the tombstones sort of go down the valley and his whole family is there. Now, you find by the time you get to the Industrial Revolution, Ma and Pa are 96 and 98. And then as you go down, oh, smoke, industry. You've got to leave the countryside. You go and you live in cities. And what happens is the children eight of them out of 10 are dead by the time they're six or seven. So the average lifespan has died. Oh, the next level, those two who survive live to be 85 and 86. So it's not the lifespan that's increasing. Uh, it's the average of death that's increasing, right? The average lifespan, I mean, uh, as we increase the medicine, we're not living longer. We're actually living shorter compared to all the known history and that as well adds a picture that supports the biblical text rather than anything else. John, I'd, I'd, I'd like to add a bit of humour to this. Uh, <laughs> I just read something in the chat by uh, one cow, cow stampede. He says, my friend wants to become an archaeologist, but I'm trying to put him off. I'm convinced his life will be in ruins. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've got, a, I've got a question for you, actually. Um, you're probably aware of uh, Mount Roraima Pollen, the Mount Roraima Pollen. I can't Apparently, tell you unless you're talking about the stuff in South America. That's that's correct. Yeah, it's in I think somewhere in Ven near Venezuela. Yeah, but apparently they, they, they do know about it. Yeah. Yeah, they they found pollen in uh, apparently 1.7 to 1.8 billion year old rock strata. And what uh, sort of attracted my interest is I started reading on um, what these people found. And uh, I'll just quote a section of, of one of the papers I read. It says, several paleonologists participated in the research discussed in Stainford, Stainforth, sorry, that's in 1966. And apparently genuine pollen and spores were recovered from samples of the the Raymer supergroup. Now I read I read some other uh, reports that uh, they tried to um, counter that. They said, "Oh no, they got it all wrong. It was actually glass beads and not pollen." Yet, you know, we're talking about these particular people are experienced paleontologists. How could they get that wrong? Is it just another rescue device to get out of the the fact that that's a, it's a contradiction to the evolution story? Yes, you will find that this is a very common modus operandi where something is found that doesn't fit, despite the fact that scientists have got a reputation of being men in white coats who are open-minded. Um, because of their philosophy, some of them are so open-minded, their brains are fell out, and they're not open to actually <laughs> seeing, hey, the pollen is actually real, it's actually there. Um, yeah. Glass beads don't mimic pollen. 
you'll find the pollen always has a structure on the outside. If anybody wants any more detail on this without me going into too much technicality, you can go to creationresearch.net, click on the fact file and insert pollen and search because we have a full report on that there and you find the pollen is quite real. But the biggest problem is we believe the bottom rocks are billions of years old and life wasn't here then to have flowers to have pollen, right? So that, that's the real conundrum. Evolution must be true despite the evidence. So that's the one that is, is a real significant problem. Amen. Well said. Uh, yeah, I, 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 just, just, just one, one thing uh, to finalize that. Ed, I, find, I found it interesting that um, they put it down to contamination, but this is what they have to say. Uh, and I'm quoting here, right? It says the resulting groundwater would have deposited the pollen and spores in largely, get a lot of this, in largely unnoticed microscopic openings in the subsurface hornfells. You see yeah. that? Unnoticed. <laughs> That's contaminated through device. unnoticed microscopic openings. Well, no, m most of our viewers don't know what hornfells is. It's a metamorphic heat-based rock uh, which has been cooked up. Any pollen that was deposited along there, if it was before the rock was cooked, would be gone. If it was yep. after the rock that was cooked, I'll be blunt. You use hornfells in water-resistant walls. It's not going to happen. It's stupid. It's a big hornfells yep. quarry not far from my house. That, that's why I laughed when I saw it. I thought <laughs> I'd better take a clip of this and I'll yeah. mention it. Uh, well, we're sorry, used to... Sorry, Stan, um, go, go for it. Yeah, no, no, great stuff. Yeah, we're used to rescue devices from these evolutionists and uniformitarians when uh, confronted with evidence that contradicts their, their story. Uh, but here's a question that came in recently that I was able to put on screen, John. It's from uh, Jamie. He says, most fruits and vegetables were cultivated into existence. How should that be viewed? It appears to be an advancement. Okay. As a gardener from way back, I do this myself so that uh, when I grow a crop of peas and I try to get my own seeds and replant them next year, I'll discover that uh, you will find that uh, out of that pot of peas, one or two will actually produce microscopic plants. Uh, I mean, my best record is a pea plant that was that tall with pea pods that were that long. Now, I didn't bother breeding that one because it would take millions of those to actually feed my family. Uh, I want the ones that are bigger and provide you with more healthy looking uh, peas. Now, what you'll call that is artificial selection. Now, I will opt for bigger peas. Now, the price the plant pays for this is the insects go, wow, let's raid his garden. And they're liable to get most of the seeds before I do. So I now have another fight on my hands. I have to invent pesticides and all sorts of stuff. So what you find is these ones that are claimed to be advancements are usually, you're talking about agriculture, that's us directing the selection. We have brains. Why bother planting 2 million peas when you can plant 10 and achieve exactly the same thing? So we will opt for the natural varieties amongst the plants that produce what we want. It may not be the best for the plant, but it certainly is best from our point of view. Getting back to Dawkins's cabbages, because up at Jurassic Arc, we have a whole garden uh, allocated to what happened after the flood when men and women had to choose what plants would work in their environment and then choose the best result because nothing grew all year anymore. And, and to, to use cabbages, we have a big mural, which is really beautiful, showing the history of cabbages from the Romans onwards. 
we've ended up with well let's put it this way if you choose for more leaves the leaves get clustered in the middle and the ones in the middle can't get chlorophyll build up so they're all white and you might think it's tasty and you end up with what you call a modern you know cabbage um it's all white inside and, and you can boil it up and it's pretty tasty according to some mothers okay you go one step further and you are walking through your cabbage field one day and there's a cabbage that's gone to seed and up comes a stem and on it there is little yellow flowers now i've done this myself pick the flowers because most flowers are edible don't eat the red ones though by the way that's a, that's a pretty serious rule and watch out for some of those lilies with the big long pistols but you know learn more about survival before you start doing this and eat them and you get a nice taste so some farmers said let's breed for flowers and so you end up with all sorts of consequences of that you end up with broccoli right uh, that's where you bred for flowers but you picked them before the flowers could burst right before the flowers some of you buy broccoli at the supermarket and you take it and put it in the fridge and you complain a week later when it's gone all yellow that's because it's it's still starting to open in flower you can actually get all the chinese cabbages breed for tallness breed for fatness you can actually breed for fat bodies now some humans do this if you notice eat at mcdonald's every day it breeds for fat bodies um but if your body does go fat because some people's won't you'll be as skinny as skinny no matter what you put into it and some people are as fat as fat you could breed a, a whole line of humans fat bodied skinny bodies and we do the same with plants and you end up with the rapshana brassica sort of uh, bulb on the bottom you know the uh, bulb like cabbages uh you can get them all and there's hundreds of varieties of these cabbages and we all started off with the wild roman cabbages here's the clue you take man out of the picture let them go wild and you'll find their seeds will crossbreed crossbreed reduce reduce until they go back to being a wild cabbage again because that's the one that survives without your help or without mine mm. wow that's some great information you are a wealth of, of information john so it's kind of like artificial selection with dogs then mm -hmm. as in your chihuahuas and some of these dogs that we've artificially selected for if we were to just leave them on their own selection would essentially remove them from nature and we that's go true. We're, we're breeding for dollars at the moment so the weirder your dog looks the higher the price is on it and the shorter its lifespan usually <laughs> yeah so then when evolutionists ask okay well what's the limits then it seems like with what you're saying john artificial selection gives us an idea into the limits as in eventually we reach a wall you where do. so yeah. much of that information or allelic variability as they would call it has been lost like your yeah. chihuahua for example yeah. yeah your beetroots are a good example too so uh, in europe of course they don't have sugar cane it's too cold the sweet canes the sweet grasses don't really do well in the northern hemisphere uh, above the bottom of france right so what you'll find is they use beets and what they've done is try to improve the amount of sugar in it so they've gone from one percent to two percent to three percent and just a bit over and that's the best you can naturally do it won't breed any bigger than that unless you pay god and you insert some sugar making gene in it likewise with the dogs i mean we've bred dogs bigger and bigger and bigger we've reached the limit at one end we've read them smaller and smaller and smaller to look like rats you can put in your purse and carry on an airplane which i've seen some women do right and so what you find is if you then try to crossbreed 
the little Chihuahua with the huge Great Dane, you'll either crush the Chihuahua or end up with a <laughs> Great Dane. Uh, so what you get is you've actually reached the limits. There are real limits there. Beyond that, if you try to breed the Chihuahua any small, the dog breeders will tell you, you kill them, right? Their breeding will not allow you to go any further. You've reached the limit. So would you say then, John, closer to the creation event, let's say the ARC 4,500 years ago and the creation event 6,000 years ago, the original created kinds would have had more potential within them for change, for uh, adaptive events. W would it be safe to say that then since they haven't reached the wall at that point? It certainly seems to be true, but of course you may have to uh, presume that God knew what was coming, but since the Bible says Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world, he knew what death and struggle would do to animals, right? So he already had a plan in place that the animals would survive. Now, to give you the best example, I've had dogs ever since I was a kid, five or six years of age, right? I've traveled in places at night, you've got to watch for the wolves, you've got to watch for the coyotes, you've got to watch for the dingoes, right? Now, the wild dogs are far genetically far healthier than the ones we have at home. And their lifespan is traditionally, unless they get eaten, of course, which does limit your lifespan, uh, you'll find that they actually breed better. They have a bigger potential. Uh, and so the gray wolves are perhaps the closest to the original dog kind you could find in the world today. Least number of mutations, least number of LLs, least number of all of those things, they are the the, the most healthy of all the dogs on the planet. Since, and, and this is a question that, that typically comes out, comes up, especially in this creation versus evolution debate, since we talk about kinds and bringing forth after their kinds as spoken of in Genesis so many times, the evolutionists will typically ask, what's your definition of a kind? How can we recognize what is a kind and what's another kind that aren't related, essentially? What would be the, a, a quick and, and good response to that, John? Okay, I'm not sure there's necessarily a quick response, but there's a pragmatic response and there's a biblical response. In your Hebrew text, you are looking at the word man, right? oh, sorry, the word min, M-I-N, right? That Genesis chapter one says 10 times God created each min uh, after each, each group rather after its own min. Uh, we translate that into English kind, but in the Latin, the word is genus, right? So Linnaeus, when he was looking for words to describe the creation, he borrowed genus straight out of his Latin Bible, right? So genus and species in the beginning are subdivisions based on a biblical concept of created genus with various species coming from that genus. So there's a bit of history that's really helpful. Secondly, the English word kin, it simply means a related member of your family. So my brother, my sister, my auntie, uh, Europeans, Aboriginals, etc. they're all members of the humankind, right? We are in the one kind of people, even though we would put ourselves as separate races, which is not the same as separate species, we are still in that one family of man. So that's probably at the pragmatic end and at the biblical end, you, you get a good balance of those things. That's a great response, John. I appreciate that. I have to get to this question uh, because it's something that I've heard so much, especially uh, lately. Because the rule of change, John, appears to be loss of information and degeneration, I am seeing many evolutionists now 
desperately attempt to claim that large-scale evolution can occur through loss of information. What are your thoughts on, on that claim and that argument now coming from the evolution side? Well, I was in the staff room at the Kansas State University talking to the professor of biology who was telling me that the uh, best evidence for evolution was the second law of thermodynamics, which is exactly the same question you've just asked, because it says order descends into chaos. And he was saying, well, if you have an original creature and it gets more and more types, that's the second law, that's evolution. And uh, he didn't care to deal with the fact that you can only do that if you've already got a dog. You can only turn into other sorts of dogs. You go downhill till finally your poor little chihuahua has lost about everything it can, including its hair in some cases, right? And it's really a loss of information. Now, really what you're doing is a, a game of bluff. Now, most, most people who are lay people, the scientist comes and says, okay, um, stasis is one of our best proofs of evolution. But he never tells you what stasis is and he hopes you'll never ask. Right, so he's using the bluff tactic. So can I encourage you all out there, be bold enough to ask. And a good illustration is one homeschooling mum because she was on a field trip I was running and she dug up a fossil and she said, how old is this fossil? I said, well, who, who do you want to answer the question? Now, it was technically a Permian site, right, which is now sadly closed. Uh, and anyway, um, the she dug the rock up and I said, well, if I went to the textbook, it would tell me this was so many hundred million years old. And she said, well, how do they know that? I said, that's because that's how they date the fossil. And she looked at me and she said, you mean they date the rocks by the fossil and the fossil by the rocks? I said, yeah, that's how it's done. And she said, oh, don't be stupid. That Nobody is that stupid. Just at that time, a group from the nearest university came into the other end of the quarry. And I said, well, okay, uh, go and ask that professor over there what he thinks. Now, here we have a group of maybe 40 homeschoolers, uh, a dozen mums and dads, right? And so she boldly, I didn't believe she'd go and do it. She boldly went over to this professor and she said, oh, I've just dug up this fossil. Look at this wonderful piece of coral here. And how old is it? And he, she came back and reported. And I said, what did he say? Well, he said, it's 200 million years old. And uh, I said, well, what did you ask then? I said, well, how do we know that? And he said, because that's what the textbooks say. And she said, why did the textbooks say that? Well, they get it from the rocks. Well, how do the rocks get it? Well, they get it from the fossil. And she said, you're right, they're stupid. Now, you and I need to watch through, to, to dig through all the bluff. The evidence for evolution is bluff, 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 lie, lie, lie. Don't let them get away with it. Force them to the point of saying, okay, where is your evidence? Not where is your explanation, because explanation is like debating logic. Uh, even a lie can be logical, but you'll catch them out somewhere where you say, give me your actual evidence. Yeah, uh, John, uh, one of the things I keep hearing about how cruel God is and, um, you know, they say, why did God make viruses and are viruses bad? Uh, I mean, I, I know the answer to that, but I'd like to hear, hear you explain it uh, to the audience. Okay. Uh, when you look at Genesis chapter 1, you cannot deny that it says God made everything very good. good. Yeah. Now, Charles Darwin, the theologian, who already knew that, did not go for his book on evolution until after the death of his favourite daughter, Annie, right? Yeah. I've been to her tomb site. I've taken pictures of the tomb site, right? I've read all the, the evidence, etc. After Charles Darwin's favourite daughter died, 
his great his great grandson said he went and with with un, unabated enthusiasm wrote his book on evolution now what he tried to do was get rid of a god who was good because he said how could god be good if my favorite daughter died now if you want to know why his favorite daughter died you could blame the local council for poor sanitation you could blame him for getting involved in being away so often you could blame the occult that his whole family was dabbling in right and any one of those might have worked but he chose to blame god okay now in reality in the beginning god made everything very good our immune system would have been perfect no matter what the viruses did you were well equipped to live forever you catch that it wasn't mm. until sin came in that death came in we were equipped to live forever with the fruit of the tree of life uh, we would have been able to enjoy that pleasure but after sin came in the bible reports things going downhill so point number one is firstly your immune system goes downhill current illustration our american rep right carol he got COVID 19 absolutely no effect whatsoever his wife got COVID 19 underlying problem serious diabetes she was dead within a week okay so COVID 19 did absolutely nothing to one person and it bombed out the other person or at least it triggered the reaction that produced the bombing out now the good news of course is his wife is waiting for him in heaven with the lord jesus because she was a christian so god has provided a solution even to death by COVID 19 if you really want to take it so what you find is that in the present world things like viruses we usually only discover them when we go looking for what's wrong so don't be surprised that we have a slanted view in the media in the science literature of this is bad that's bad nobody ever asked how many COVID viruses there are out there and i think at the last count there was 90 hundred thousand just in your body and they were all good except for a couple of these ones that are producing the current disease um, regime so what you find is most viruses don't do anything to you we don't know what they do there's one virologist who said to me um, i'm researching a virus that appears necessary for fertilization in women he said because all the women that don't have this virus residing in their body don't seem to be able to get pregnant now i thought that was very fascinating it works like mm. a little trigger on the inside of the womb and gets the the whole place hey there's male coming so, something like this you know <laughs> and, and uh, he's working on that at the moment it'll be interesting to follow up and see if anything really happens on that because i'm sure a lot of these things that look like broken bits of pieces of other other creatures are probably triggers that have to match in with the other creature because they actually pass messages on and they're part of god's mail system as it were so there's there's a good summary for today as we begin to round off here my office is opening up and i've got to get on and tell the ladies what to do <laughs> no problem yeah, yeah john I, re I remember reading or hearing it from someone they said that uh if all the viruses and bacteria in this world were gone we'll probably live for about less than a day we'd die there's a lot of truth in that hence buy your probiotics eat your food uh not necessarily 100 percent sterile uh you know make sure you're well as them uh, as they used to say let the kids eat dirt um you will find kids who go and play in the dirt are an awful lot healthier than those who are raised in absolutely sterile environments there is a lot of truth in that 
because 99.9% of all the bacteria, of all the viruses are there to help you as part of God's original good creation. Just watch out for the bad ones. <laughs> and the bad ones are often because you've gone downhill, not because the bug has gone downhill. Great response, John. I completely agree with you. So much truth in that. I want to thank the audience for all their questions. Uh, we are uh, coming up at an hour and a half and time always flies by with you, John. I was wondering if we could end with this question. We're going to wind it down with this question and call it a night because uh, I'm really impressed with your debates, John. I've seen most of them, including your uh, debate with Richard Dawkins. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that experience as a final question for the uh, evening. All right. Um, I was in England and much to the annoyance of uh, people like Richard and many of the others, David Attenborough, etc. Um, David Attenborough, by the way, refuses to debate, as he said to one of my professor friends when he was asked why he didn't debate me, he said, because I'd lose. Right? <laughs> you notice David Attenborough never, never presents evidence. He only presents a sermon and he ties it together with pretty pictures and it works. He does a wonderful sales job. Richard Dawkins does even worse than that. He provides pictures with abuse right, and scorn. And uh, I was in a school in a college and you're doing year 12, year 13 at the request of the school. And uh, anyway, it wasn't a, a private school. It was a government school. And uh, Richard rang up and uh, asked, could I go to his studio? And I said, no, Richard, I'm busy. Uh, you want to see me, you'll have to come out here. Um, now, I, I didn't expect him to do it. I thought, well, okay, I'm John Mackay. I'm not all that important. He mightn't come out here at all, but he did. He turned up at a very inconvenient time, just as we're setting up a meeting, and he basically demanded a debate on the spot. Uh, now, sometimes the three-minute version of this gets out on, on, on the web. Sometimes the 17-minute, there's an even longer version out there. And if you can catch it, he, his supporters put it online because they think this is him. He's doing really well. He absolutely, it, it's, it's absurd. What he thinks he's done as well is some of the worst evidence you could ever hear for any theory, let alone evolution. But it's wonderful proof of that Bible text that says God hands the atheist over to foolishness because he's a very smart man, he's a very bitter man, but he's very foolish. He lacks wisdom. So pray for people like this. His arguments never were, what about the evidence for this or that? He doesn't use evidence, right? He uses abuse and you don't want to fall for it. So smile nicely and say, Richard, you are so angry at us Christians because you know there is a God. You're an atheist and you're so mad at, at God that you have to take it out on us. Get saved, Richard. That's what you need. And he does, by the way. Amen. Well said. I'm just glad we're on the same team and the same side, John. I wouldn't want to be an evolutionist and have to face you in a debate. So I want to recommend uh, those debates to the audience uh, for those who have not yet seen them, as well as as we round off here in the description box of this video, you can find our previous shows with John McKay. We've had two, two awesome presentations and Q&As, as well as I've got uh, John McKay's YouTube channel linked his creation research website and ask John McKay website. So please check that out. Uh, thanks everybody for the support, super stickers and great questions today. Um, I wanna thank John for once again, giving us your time. I know you're incredibly busy, John. So I really appreciate that. And George, uh, thanks for joining this as well as uh, co-host. Great job, George. Any, any final words from you, George? 
Yeah, I, I actually had a, a question for John, but uh, you, you said it was the last question, so I don't know. Should I ask it or not? Oh, yeah, no, we'll save any, have got, any other have you got questions. Time, John, or? No, no, no. I've got, got five minutes. Okay. Oh, quick, quickly, uh, just yesterday we, we had a debate with uh, someone who supposedly is a Christian, but his um, ideas are more atheistic, but he brought up this um, – Younger Dryas impact hypothesis. I think it's a in response to the global flood. He he substitutes this comet coming into Earth and causing all that water, rather than a global flood scenario that the Bible describes. Mm -hmm. Have you got any thoughts on that? Okay, well, it's a good example of where um, you know how the Bible says, "Watch out for false science." Now, in our King James, we use the word science because we've come to the English version via the Latin, and the word science in Latin means knowledge. So what's out for false knowledge, false theology, false biology, false politics, false economics? If you take any of those bits of information, it will lead you astray. If you go via the Greek New Testament, beware of false gnosis, which is the same word gnosis in Greek as science is in Latin. So the Bible warns you about false knowledge. Now, if you want me to be brutally blunt, because our time is limited, false knowledge, false science is anything that contradicts God's word or ignores God's word and substitutes human opinion. Okay, let's have a look what God's word says. It says, when God told Noah, there's a big flood coming. First of all, you understand that Noah is later referred to as a man of faith because he believed Peter said in things that he hadn't yet seen. There was no rain, right? The Bible's emphatic. And God says, it's going to rain for 40 days. And oh, what's rain, Lord? I, I don't know. Go and preach it. Imagine having to preach about something you didn't even know yourself. Noah was faithful. He was a faithful preacher, it says in the New Testament. So what you find is that Noah obeyed by faith and he knew that a flood was coming. Read Genesis chapter 7. And it talks from verse 11 onwards about how the heaven fell down. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And also the fountains of the deep break open and the fountains, fountains, liquid water, right? Volcanic stuff. Now, the Bible picture is that up until the bringing um, up of the earth on day three, the world had been covered with water. So the first objection to this extraterrestrial comet theory is that there always was enough water on earth to flood it. Noah's flood was the second time the world had been covered with water, not the first. So you, you know, first of all, that when the world was brought up from underneath the water on day three, the water was on the outside. It went inside because the land on the inside came outside. So the fountains of the deep are going to be fed by a huge underwater storage of water that was there, underground storage of water that was there from day three of creation. So you don't need to add an extra comet. Now, you can actually uh, tell us that, okay, a comet came in and cracked open the heavens and triggered off the fountains, the, the mists above, etc. whatever you think that they, they are, to actually begin to rain 40 days and 40 nights. But the one thing I am pretty sure of is if you had a comet made of ice even that was big enough to cause all the water to cover the earth, you've got a comet two-thirds the size of planet Earth. And yeah. the inertia from a blob of ice that's actually going to come down, even if you make it only of CO2, right, and it's cold enough to freeze all the, the atmosphere and make it rain, it's going to kill off Noah as well. Uh, you, you've, got, you've got too many problems from your human-based theory when your Bible says, hey, it's so simple. I said rain. 
it rained. I rose up the fountains of the deep and they came. And for 110 days after the rain stopped, the water kept on rising. And you have no reference to any media, no reference to any comet, no reference to anything like that. The stars didn't begin to fall. I say that because Jesus said that's still to happen. So there's no need to add that to no matter how logical it gets. One of my experiences as someone who does a lot of debating is that any story can be logical. Truth is always logical, but logical is not always true. And you are now need to remember that what the Pharisees thought they believed was logical. There was an error in there somewhere, but they couldn't see it. Jesus saw it straight away. They did not start with the word of God. And if they did, they did not want to understand it. So these things you add on to the Bible, be very careful. Whether it's your opinion or mine, just go straight with God's word and check it out. That's my encouragement to you. Go to creationresearch.net and download the MP4s, MP3s, whatever they do these days. You'll enjoy the debates and all those teaching things. Amen. Very well said, John. I appreciate you giving us another five minutes like that to answer that important question. Uh, thank you for all you do to help us. You are an incredible blessing. And we've had a great audience and chat today with so many questions. As always, I, I save them uh, for a possible future show where we can um, ask more questions. So, John, thanks again. Any final words from you before we uh, shut it down for the day? Um, when the scripture says, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, there's your starting point. When he said, if it was not so, I would have told you, right? So Jesus uh, actually tells you, I told you all you need to know in Genesis about creation, in Genesis about the flood, in Deuteronomy about the need for sacrifice, and I was that sacrifice. I'm, I'm the truth, guys. Uh, follow me and you'll not be led astray. Amen. Well said. Well said, John. And George? Uh, John McKay, you are a legend. <laughs> Absolute I'm not legend. I'm not your eyes, John. That's good. I, lo I love you, John. Good on you, mate. <laughs> okay, guys. God bless everybody in the chat. God bless you, George. God bless you, John. And standing for truth is out. <laughs> <laughs>